Let's start our time together by opening a word of prayer. Father, we're so thankful to you for the Son of God and for the salvation that you have brought to us through his amazing, loving sacrifice and through the miracle of songs this morning that cause us to reflect on our Savior and his love for us and for the life that we have together in him. Lord, I pray that you would bless our time in the Word, that your Word would speak to us, it would challenge our hearts, it would encourage our spirits, but Lord, in all of this, that Christ would have centrality in everything that we meditate on and that his praises would be on our lips. And we pray that you bless Amen. So we are now some 15 or so sermons into 1 Peter, and we're just entering chapter 2. And that may seem like it's moving really slowly, but it's really hard sometimes to balance how quickly are you going to progress through a book like this. Um, you, want, you want things to move along, but you also want everyone to feast on the richness of what God is communicating in the text. And First Peter is so applicable to all of us because we all live with struggles of this life. It's largely believed that First Peter was written during a time of difficult persecution against the church, likely under King Nero. Some early Christian traditions suggest that Peter may have even been martyred some couple years after writing this epistle. We don't know the exact, with exact certainty, the timeline of all these events and how they played out. We rely on extra biblical evidence. Because as you can see, 1 Peter doesn't explain any of that. But the life for all of us, uh, but life for all of us, already contains a lot of pain and loss and difficulty. This is common in a sin-cursed world, isn't it? We all struggle with the pain and difficulties that we face in this world. But at times, the pains of this world are even multiplied if you are a Christian, if you are a child of God. This world hated the Son of God, and it's going to hate us as well, since we are children of God through Him. So it's hard enough for us to think and to believe and to act rightly in this world. Uh, you know, we suffer losses um, and pain all the time, hence our ongoing prayer request list that we're constantly sharing with each other. But imagine losing everything, your job, your house, your possessions. Imagine being jeered at, hated, being beaten or driven out of town. Imagine having your loved ones beaten in front of you, imprisoned, or maybe even executed right in front of you. You can understand how this would compound the hurts of life. It's easy to see how a person could quickly fall into despair and bitterness. In our weakness, I think we all can tend to do that, even without those extenuating circumstances. Peter is attempting to pull the hearts and minds of his readers 
from a despair over earthly circumstances to rejoicing over a much bigger picture. He wants all believers to rejoice in the glory of their salvation, to place their hope and trust in the Lord, to look forward with eagerness to the return of our Lord, and to live out their identity as children of God every day in light of all these things. You see, the more we know about our God and the greatness of what he has done for us, the more we set our hearts on these things, the less likely we are to get knocked off our feet when adversity strikes us. So Peter opens his letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He not only reminds us of the glories of our salvation, but he points out that it is a sure and fixed thing. All stages of our salvation are fixed and immovable. They are imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed for the last time. Here's the mental image that that Peter is drawing here. Here's, Here's God, okay? Obviously, God is bigger than his creation, but here's God, okay? Here's your salvation right in the center of God. This is the mental image that he's creating. So... How can our salvation be lost? What would it take? The idea is is that something outside of God, obviously something he created, would have to be able to conquer or destroy him to remove our salvation. And the absurdity of that idea is so far out there that we have literally no excuse to be in fear or doubt. There's no reason for that. So he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is Peter's introduction, the purpose, the bedrock of his letter. This is the theme. This is what is riddled through everything that he speaks of. Everything else is shared or tied to this thing. So even the icing on the cake, he tells us right after that in verses 10 through 12, that the prophets of old longed to understand these things, and so do the angels in heaven. They all longed to understand this, but God meant it all for you. He's given the full glory, the full understanding, the full assurance of these things to you right now. They They were serving you for this moment. Then starting in verse 13, Peter addresses what our response should be to these realities. How should we respond? In light of all that God has done, what should our pattern of life, even in the midst of the greatest trials, what what should it look like? So he lists these instructions in a series of imperative commands. He says, first, uh, 
set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Christ. Set, secure, fix yourself on this. Second, in verse 15, be holy in all your conduct. Just as God is holy, remember, you be holy. Josh addressed, conduct ourselves with fear throughout our time. The third was by Matt last week, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. These are proper responses for one who has been given all things by God and they are secured in him. Additionally, God is our father, and this is a a pattern through all of uh, this introduction. God is our father. Jesus is both our Lord and our big brother. And we are also surrounded by loving brothers and sisters in Christ. So respond in this way. Today we are going to address a fourth imperative in this fourth way that we are to respond to our great salvation is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So if you want to read along, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The imperative in verse 2, long for the pure spiritual milk. Peter gives us our next response in the form of a metaphor. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, by that, by that by it you may grow up into salvation. It's a simple metaphor that's easily relatable to all of us. We understand this. It doesn't take a lot of explanation. Everyone should be familiar with newborn babies and the fact that they drink milk. We understand this. But what is the point that he's making? We're going to have to do some unpacking to benefit from what Peter is saying. So we're going to divide this into the simplest type of outline that I can come up with. I'm going to address the what, the how, and the why. So what? Let's start with the what. What is pure spiritual milk? I have to be totally honest. I struggled with this. I struggled hard with it. And I, you know, a lot of my preparation time, I spent hours and hours and hours struggling with this, wanting to be sure that I'm reading this right. And even now, I stand before you and I don't say, I am absolutely certain, 100%, I've got this perfect. Okay? But... I don't think there's a man that steps up here on the stage and tries to exposit the word of God who doesn't have on their heart that they want to do right by the word of God. They want to honor Christ. They want to honor the truth. They want to give to you accurately what God has said without messing it up. And we all strive for that and struggle with that. But there's times you come upon something like this. I look at this and it's a simple metaphor, but it doesn't say... And this is the pure spiritual milk. It's this. Sometimes it doesn't clearly define it, so we have to work with the context around it and struggle with it to try to come to our best conclusion. So what is pure spiritual milk? It seems the first conclusion people make is that this is speaking of the Word of God. This is the initial thought I had as well. 
As I read through the passage, I, I try not to look at anything else. I diagram, I look at the words, I, I think and reason through it, I look at the surrounding context. I try to uh, examine the word itself grammatically. But it seems logical, doesn't it? It's the word of God. We're constantly exhorted in the Bible to grow in our knowledge of the truth. In fact, there are other passages in the scripture that use milk as an analogy, like in the book of Hebrews that we just went through, we just finished. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So Paul uses milk, or uh, in, in Hebrews, it uses milk as a metaphor to represent basic biblical understanding. Paul uses milk as a metaphor as well in 1 Corinthians 3, but we can't use these analogies to interpret 1 Peter here in our passage. We have to let the context of this author in this letter and with his intent dictate how we understand the word. We've got to let the context of our letter determine that. But even in Peter's letter, we just got done saying at the end of the last chapter that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Does that mean that this means the word of God? Is that telling us that milk in verse 2 in the next chapter is the word of God? Many commentators actually agree with that. Many of them do. Even some that are very respectable men, some men that you would appreciate and that you would agree with often. But there's others that disagree with that interpretation. For one thing, the word is represented by seed at the end of chapter 1, and it's represented by milk in the, in the beginning of chapter 2. Seems rather inconsistent. And I have to say that I tend to agree with these latter men. Additionally, the word spiritual is logikos in the Greek. That word is logikos. While it sounds similar to logos, we understand logos, the word, it has that root and it sounds like it. It's not the same word. The basic meaning of logikos is that which is reasonable. It's uh, an expression of reason. But it can also carry the, the meaning of spiritual. So you'll, you'll see some translations, you'll look at, you look at the various Bibles, about half of them translate it, milk of the word. Other Bibles translate it as spiritual milk. So which is it? Which of these is correct? And I truly believe the answer is yes. I, I truly believe that it's both in one sense. Because I think spiritual is a correct translation. I think that's right. It, spiritual is the correct translation, but it includes the word, our Lord Jesus Christ, and all the means God has given to us by which we grow in Christ. 
in which we love him and pursue him. It seems to be a very, uh, the best I can say is it's a very holistic term, referring to the parts uh, and that are intimately correct, uh, connected to the greater whole. It's not just a written word. It is Christ that we are pursuing. Christ and all the means given by God's grace through which uh, we live out our new birth in Christ. It's, it's not just a written word. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, just briefly. I think this verse will help. It's the only other usage of this word in the, in the New Testament, in the scriptures. There's only two usages of this word as far as I know, which again makes it very hard to interpret correctly. And again, we're not using Romans 12 to interpret Peter, but at least give that you know, a look so that we can try to get a better sense of this word. Paul finishes his masterful treatise on salvation. And in chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Same word, spiritual worship. The word spiritual is the same word, logikos. What Paul is saying here is that our life of worship should be fitting with all the spiritual realities, the excellencies of of what God's grace has given to us in Christ. It should be fitting for who Christ is and the salvation that has been brought to us. And I believe Peter is expressing the same idea in our passage in a sense that we are to crave Christ and all those things that are related to our life in Christ. If if Christ is at work in us, if we are reborn and a a new heart is given to us, new affections, then is it reasonable to expect that we would have a thirst for Christ uh, and, and, and we had a thirst for Christ, that is it reasonable to expect that we would want to obey him, that we would want to cleanse or purge our sin, that we would want to love our brethren, that we would want to that we would love the word of God, etc., etc., etc. Again, it appears to be a very, in, in, in my sense, a very holistic term. We pursue him by embracing all the attitudes and conduct that sustain our new life by faith in him. And I love this adjective, pure. Breast milk by nature is pure, untainted, is it not? Can you think of a more natural food? Christ and those things God has supplied by his means of grace to nourish our life in Christ is pure and untainted. Breast milk also contains all the nutrients necessary for good health and development in newborn, doesn't it? So does all that God has provided by his grace in Christ. As Peter says in the beginning of his second epistle, that God's divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And similarly, all that is related to Christ is sufficient, complete. It lacks nothing. So that's the what. Next is the how. How 
how are we to respond to this pure spiritual milk? First, the obvious, we are to long for it like newborn infants. The text tells us that. I remember when my son Levi was born, and he was our third child. And the nurse kept coming in and bugging my, my wife. Has he nursed? Has he nursed? Have you nursed him yet? Have you nursed him yet? She just kept coming in and pestering my wife. And when the nurse left, my wife turned to me in frustration and said, Paul, this is not my first child. They're driving me crazy. He said, he will eat when he's ready. <laughs> so... Even, even with our first, Becky, Becky was a natural mother. I mean, she, she was just amazing at it. And she took perfect care of the children, and they all grew very well. But, of course, her reason for telling me that she was frustrated is she wanted me to do something about it. <laughs> so, I, you know, I addressed it with the nurse outside the room. But eventually, the point is, he ate just fine. It, it took one taste for Levi, and bam, that was it. But let me tell you, when a newborn begins to feed, it doesn't stop, and it demands it constantly, doesn't it? They pester your wife all day long. They wake everyone up in the middle of the night, maybe multiple times. I want more. But it is actually a good thing for this infant because this is how they are supplied with everything they need for growth and well-being. It's necessary. Peter says that's what you should be like when it comes to Christ and those things God has graciously supplied for your spiritual growth and well-being in Christ. You should crave it. You should long for it. You should yearn for it. Christ should be our greatest affection, our greatest desire. And this should cause you to crave also for those things that pertain to our spiritual life, and you should desire them deeply. So here is a good question for you. Do you really desire Christ? Can you honestly say that? Do you continually desire to take in all the means that God has provided you for your spiritual benefit so that you can grow in Christ, grow in your affection? Peter says this is something we should long for, just like a newborn. But there's a second aspect of this, how, how we are to respond. Another way we are to respond to spiritual milk, verse 1 so put away all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. The first was a positive response. This is a negative response. Peter says, put away. Stop it. Cease. It could also mean to put off or put aside. The words create this mental image of taking off a raggedy old filthy shirt and casting it aside and not picking it up again and putting it back on. 
That's the mental image that this word creates. It's taking off a filthy garment and casting it off. It connects, connects it directly to the main verb to long for later in the verse. This is interesting. In other words, while you are longing for pure spiritual milk, cast these garments off. Cast these things off altogether. Get rid of them. Do them at the same time. But let's look at this list of things that we're to put away. First is malice. What's malice? The basic meaning of this word malice is it is a total lack of anything good toward another. It lacks any good whatsoever. There's no good intent at all. Only selfishness, hatefulness, pride, or any form of evil intent. You just name it. That's what malice is. Your whole focus is you. What about deceit? Deceit is a really interesting word. It actually means, it's actually the word for bait. So you get a person to believe one intention, but then you you trigger the trap or you reel them in. You baited them. You get a person to believe one intention, but then you trigger the trap. They believe that you have a good intention, but you're just bringing them along to get something that you really want. So it's pretending to love or care for others, pretending to have righteous intentions, but you were really only concerned for your own benefit. Or perhaps you're trying to do them harm you know, to somebody that you're agitated at. You just pretend to care about them, which is really closely related to this next word, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy or hypocrites in the Greek. I think we're all familiar with the word hypocrite and the understanding of that. But in the first century, um, it primarily referred to an actor. You, you've likely seen the image of a pair of masks, one with a sad face to represent tragedy and one with a happy face to represent comedy. You've seen that. This is what the Hippocrates would do. He would hold a mask over his face and pretend to be somebody he's not, and he'd act it out. And what made a good uh, Hippocrates was a clear, loud voice that was really skillful in rhetoric. In other words, it's somebody who was skilled with their voice and their language, their communication ability, and they were really capable at persuasion. They could really persuade you. What Peter's describing is people who make the world of everyday life their stage and themselves the actor, acting out with their words and conduct. You, you pretend to be one thing, either to impress others or manipulate them for your benefit, while you are actually another person altogether. But when our sinfulness is exposed, or we don't get what we want, or something does, you know, something we don't, we feel like something was unfair or unkind, that's when the real person comes out, right? Pressures of life. I frankly don't know one use of this word in the New Testament that is positive. Listen to one of the woes by which Jesus condemned the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, 
scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may be clean, may also be clean. You see the mental image. They're so worried about their traditions of cleaning all their dishes. He said, you guys are absolute hypocrites. You dress up the outside. You keep yourself looking really good on the outside. Inside, you are just full of self-indulgence and evil and greed. We can stand up with Jesus and say, yeah, you hypocrites. Yeah, get them, Jesus. But are you actually guilty of putting on a good external show while harboring ill feelings towards others at times? Or do you pretend to care about others when you really aren't terribly concerned about others? But Peter commands us that we have to put all of this off, all forms of malice and hypocrisy and deceit. These things need to be put off entirely, not even a little bit left. The next is envy. Envy is a feeling of ill will toward another because either a real or a presumed advantage on their part. So maybe you want to be, uh, you want to head up the preparations for a big event here at the church, but someone else is chosen by the pastor to lead. Maybe another is selected to do some active ministry, and you feel you're a better choice, but you're overlooked. Maybe you want to be a deacon, and somebody else is chosen. Maybe a younger person is chosen for an important role in the church and you feel like you deserve it more. Maybe someone else receives a recognition that you feel you are better deserving of. The scenarios are endless. But this has no place among us as children of God and bond slaves of Christ. This has no place here. Our, Our desire should be for the benefit of each other and a willingness to fulfill whatever role God's provident hand gives to us. To do it with all our heart, even if that is cleaning toilets. Our our joy should be in the service to one another for the glory of Christ, not as some personal benefit, whether it be a position or a recognition or some kind of reward. We should also take joy in watching others grow and increase in their service. Even if they're doing what you would like to do. The last one is slander. This is just what you think it is. It's to speak about another in a malicious way. Nothing good. Just prattling on about what is negative about this other person. Not building them up, tearing them down with impunity. Every one of these is so wicked, we cringe at the thought, but are we actually susceptible to them and struggle against it more than we would like to admit? Or perhaps, do we struggle against it and we don't even recognize it? Is it possible we don't even see it? But Peter says, put these all away, every bit of it, every issue listed here in this list, you put it off, every bit of it. Be putting this off while you long for the pure spiritual milk. 
You can't pursue Christ and simultaneously have a heart that acts in this way. It can't be done. They're inconsistent. It's not fitting. Just look for a second at the very first word of our passage. It says, so. In, it means therefore, or uh, consequently, or accordingly. It, it's connecting our passage with the context of what preceded it and what preceded this passage. Everything we re- discuss in our introduction, including be holy for I am holy and love one another with an earnest and pure heart. You could put it this way. Love one another from a pure heart, therefore put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander while longing for the pure milk. You're to choose one over the other, to favor one and throw off the other. The body of Christ is a major part of God's spiritual provision and uh, that is through in and through Christ. You can't treat the family of God in this way and simultaneously gain it. Worse yet, you're actually demonstrating that you are an enemy of God when you hate his children. That's just a fact. So that's the what and the how. So why are we doing this? Why? Why crave this milk? The second half of our verse 3 that by it you may grow up into salvation. God wants you to grow up. Isn't that what we want for our children? Isn't that why we feed them and care for them and nurture them? We want them to grow up and experience all the benefits that they can possibly gain. That's God's will for us. He wants us to grow up. You're all to grow up into those things which you, for which you have been saved and set apart. You are to grow up in regards to your salvation. And can I point out something beautiful and amazing in this text? The verb for long for, as in long for the pure spiritual milk, it's in the active voice. And this means that you are the, guy, you are the ones doing it. You are to long for the milk. So we have to do something active. We have to go after it. We have to long for this milk. You're commanded to do it. But the verb, you may grow up, is in the passive, meaning it's something that's done to you. In other words, while you pursue what God has supplied for your growth in Christ, and you are are pursuing Christ with all your affections, he makes you grow. And Peter adds uh, an additional reference, or he adds a reference to Psalm 34 here as well. It's, an, it's rather edited, uh, I think, so that it fits in with his analogy here, which is very fitting. But he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's a reference to Psalm 34, which is really interesting. Just side note, that's David's psalm after he pretended to be insane before Absalom, you know, letting spit run down his beard and everything and acting like a lunatic. 
But Peter adds this, and he's, I think uh, it's edited a bit to make it fit with our context. And um, let me read for you Psalm 34. I'm going to just three verses. Uh, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lion suffers for want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Do you seek the Lord? Do you hunger for Christ and the things of Christ? Is that what you genuinely, do you really hunger for that? If you stopped and looked at your life, would that be representative? While I don't want to use this cross-reference to, again, interpret Peter's point, I believe Paul also alludes to much of of how I'm I'm viewing this in Colossians chapter 3. Because it paints a picture that seems representative of a longing for the pure spiritual milk, longing for Christ and all of those things that benefit that longing. And and let me just read it to you. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, Set your minds on these things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death then what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, or circumcised, or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must or you also must forgive. Above all, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing hymns and songs and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's a great image. 
It's a, it's a deep-seated love for Christ, a longing for Christ, and it's all associated with our life together in him. And Peter says, like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, it doesn't matter what our circumstances in life are. Things may be easy for you right now. Things may be horribly difficult. Either way, it, do, it doesn't matter what the circumstance, the answer is this, that we set our deepest craving and affection on Christ. The question is, do you long for it? And so, Father, I thank you Savior, and I thank you for the life that resides there, all the glory of our salvation that is spelled out at the beginning of the book of 1 Peter, that should leave us in awe and wonder, that should in any circumstance causes us to have trust and joy. Lord, I pray that Christ, again, in all things would be preeminent, that we would just be overwhelmed with joy and awe and rejoicing in our Savior. Teach us to crave him. Help us, Father, because we are weak and fickle people, and I pray that you would help us to set our hearts on him together. Lord, I thank you for this This analogy that causes us to stop and examine our hearts. Examine what it is that we desire and crave. Examine what our conduct and our thinking is. Lord, we ask for your mercy because we are weak and we need you. Lord, build in us this craving that brings to us the fulfillment of growing in our spiritual faith. We thank you for these things in Christ's name.